The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Hi, I'm Zara Pollandine. And I'm Zem Pollandine. And today we're reading Romans 8, verse 28 to 39. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also along with him graciously give us all these things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life. It is at the right hand of God that is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And amen. Thank you very much, Paul and Dines, for sharing the scripture with us this morning. Uh, My name is Terry, and I am one of the pastors here. This morning I get to share the word, and uh, we're in Romans chapter 8, as we have been for several weeks. And I love it when a story from church history serves to punctuate uh, part of the scripture that we're looking at this morning. And uh, this morning I would like to uh, tell you about uh, a story that is not necessarily well known, and it comes from Martin Luther Day's. This is a church that is found in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, The town is now called Lutherstadt, which means Luther's town. The name was changed in 1938. And uh, this is famous, this church, because this is the place that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of that church and uh, set in motion what led to the Protestant Reformation. And if you were to walk inside that building, you would find a, a, a very big sanctuary with an elaborate pulpit at the front. And near that pulpit, just a few feet away, you would find a tomb, stone kind of plate that is the tombstone of Martin Luther. Six or two meters beneath that, that place is where Martin Luther was buried in 1546. But what you may not know is that there is someone buried there with him. (laughs) And uh, it's not his wife. (laughs) And uh, 
he's also a very influential person in the time of the Protestant Reformation. And his name is Philip Melanchthon. Philip Melanchthon met Martin Luther when he went to teach at the University of Wittenberg, where Luther was already a professor. And they became really, really close friends, even though uh, he, uh, they were very different in temperament. In fact, Mart, uh, Melanchthon preached at Martin Luther's funeral, and then 14 le- years later when he died, he was laid right beside Martin Luther in the same grave. Let me read to you what Martin Luther said about his friendship with Melanchthon. He said, I am rough, boisterous, stormy, and altogether warlike, fighting against innumerable monsters and devils. I am born for the removing of stumps and stones, cutting away thistles and thorns, and clearing the wild forests. But Master Philip comes along softly and gently, sowing and watering with joy according to the gifts which God has abundantly bestowed upon him. Well, Philip Melanchthon's favorite verse of all was Romans 8 and verse 31, where it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In all of Melanchthon's lectures and letters and everything that was found about him, this verse stands out more than any. In fact, today, if you were to go to Wittenberg and go to where his office was at the university, you would find this plaque, a plaque like this, on the wall describing that verse. It's told of us, of him, that as he lay dying, he, was, uh, he asked for a pastor to come to read Romans chapter 8. And as he was reading, he came to verse 31, and he, he said, stop, right there. And he asked him to repeat it. And so he, re- he repeated the verse. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And Melanchthon in his deathbed said, that's it, that's it. And we're, we're told that he died with verse 31 on his lips. If God is for us, who can be against us? This verse captures the essence of the entire chapter of Romans 8. This is the verse that captures the essence of all that Paul is trying to convey. He is lifting us up to the heavenly perspectives, describing what the eternal God has accomplished for our full redemption, the fashioning of human sinners into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, and all for the glory of his Son, He is demonstrating in chapter 8 the security of the believer in Christ because if God is for us, what or who could stand against us? And he is saying in unequivocal terms that nothing, and he means nothing, can separate us who are his from the love of Christ. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so this morning, I would like to take some time to unpack this incredible last verses of chapter 8, and I'm going to do it in three sections. And the word, the the term all things comes out over and over again, so I'm going to be talking about lots of that. But I first want to say God's purpose for us in all things, God's grace for us in all things, and God's love to make us more than conquerors in all things. Let's begin with the first one, God's purpose. And let's begin by 
asking the question that in verse 31, when it's said, what then shall we say to these things, if God be for us, who can be against us? What is Paul talking about when he says these things? A very important question if we're going to interpret this passage. What are these things? The things that God has done to show that if he is for us, nothing can stand against us are actually listed in the previous two verses, verses 29 and 30. There are five of these things, and Paul lists them very clearly. He says that God foreknew us, God predestined us, God called us, God justified us, and God glorified us according to God's purpose. So the, so the these things of verse 31 are the five things of verses 29 and 30. Namely, that he foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified us. Some have called this the golden chain of redemption. That God did all these things. He foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us, he justified us, and he glorified us. Now, you might be asking, where is the word sanctification? We've talked about that word much in the last several weeks, and I like what F.F. F. Bruce says. He says that sanctification is glory begun, and glory is sanctification completed. The idea being that whomever God justifies, he is going to get to glorify, and in between those two stages is the work of becoming holy like Jesus Christ, and that's sanctification. So it is absolutely implied in this golden chain, because what God starts, God finishes. We also wonder, why is it that in verse 30, he says, those he also glorified, when our glorification is, we know, yet to come. Why would he speak of it in past tense terms? And those who study Scripture well know that that is called a prophetic past, which means a prophetic past is when something that is yet to, to take place is described as though it has already taken place. And the reason that the author Paul said it this way is because when God is the author of anything, God finishes, he starts. As Philippians 1, 6 says, he who began a good work in you will bring it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so God will finish the glorifying of us process. Now I want you to notice that the phrase all things <clears throat> is found in verse 28, and it's found in verse 32, and it's found in verse 37. All things. First, we talked about these things in verse 20, 31. And we referred to the five these things, but he also talks about all things, verse 28 and verse 32, particularly. Here's the way I understand it these things, namely the five links of the golden chain, these things God accomplished so that the all things of verse 28 and verse 32 would be rock-solid secure for everyone who puts their faith in Christ. Okay? So, so God ensured these five things would take place so that all other things would be added to us and we would have no insecurity in our standing with God in this life and in the life 
to come. So let's start back in verse 28 with the first time that Paul mentions all things. It's a pivotal verse. And in verse 28, Paul says, we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let's make three observations. Number one, it's God who's doing the action. God is the one who works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Secondly, we see that he does it for those who have loved him and are called according to his purpose. He doesn't do that for everybody. God does not cause all things to work together for good for everyone. He does it for those who love him and those who are called according to his purposes. His children, as he's been talking about throughout Romans 8, those who cry, Abba, Father, those who have been given the Holy Spirit, those whom God has said there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God works all things together for good for those people. And then finally, what is the good and the purpose? Well, the purpose from verse 29 is to conform us into the image of his Son. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What's God's purpose for your life? God's purpose for your life is to become like his Son, Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus walked the earth, for the first time since Adam, there was a man as God intended man to be. And that's how God intends all of us to be. And we are being fashioned into his image. And so this means that we must not trivialize verse 28. What do I mean by that? Well, when we drive into the mall parking lot, and whether we get a really great parking spot or whether we get a really bad parking spot, we must not trivialize Romans 8, 28 and say, well, well, God causes all things to work together for good. I didn't get a good parking spot. Well, maybe God's got something in store for me. Oh, I did get a good parking spot. Oh, maybe God's got something in store for me. That is to cheapen a very important concept, which is God's main purpose, and though he might use parking spots all the time, God's main purpose is to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what he's all about. That's his good purpose. That's what matters to him in your sickness and in your health, in your wealth and in your poverty. All things, all things, in all things, God is working for good to conform us to the image of his son. And uh, that's his purpose. Now, what does the word conform mean? I have on the, tech, on the screen here uh, the Greek word, Sumorphous. And it, it means that you share the inner essence of the person. Uh, it's the sharing of the inner essence or identity, the similar behavior that comes from the essential nature. So if God is conforming us into the image of Christ, that means that he's leading us to share the very same essence, the very same nature, the very same behavior that flows from that that nature. That is a work in progress. He is fashioning you to become very much like Jesus Christ. It will take your entire life. And that's the purpose for which God foreknew you, saw you when you were yet not here. That's the reason he predestined you. That's the reason he called you and he justified you. And that's the reason he will sanctify you and glorify you. 
The purpose of God is to conform you to Christ. We must remember that in, in all circumstances, at all times, and in all things. The fatherly love of God, the jealous, loyal, loving, holy love of God is always intent on you becoming like his son. He will not be coaxed in another direction to change his purpose. He will not give in to whining when he knows that it is best for you. He is a compassionate and loving father, but he sees the long view, he sees the big picture, and he will always drive you toward and lead you toward the things that are best for you in the good purposes that he has for you. Your only calling is to trust him, to, to lay your life before him and follow his lead. Now, I'm certain that the handling of this passage will be troublesome for some of you that are listening today and, and uh, that I will not answer many of the questions that you might have about the golden chain of God's doing. And uh, I want to share with you what uh, one author said, H.A. Ironside said, we have a glorious chain of five links in verses 29 and 30, reaching from eternity in the past to eternity in the future. Foreknowledge, predestination, called, justified, glorified. Every link was forged in heaven and not one can ever be broken. This blessed portion is not for theologians to wrangle over, but for saints to rejoice in. <clears throat> I want to tell you that, <clears throat> excuse me, that you will stand on tiptoe and try to understand God's foreknowledge and God's predestination and God's election of you if you are a child of God. You will rack your brain and twist your mind around to compute and hold together in your brain the, the seemingly conflicting doctrines of our responsibility to follow God and obey God and choose God and his incredible divine foreknowledge and predestination and election of us. And your brain will fry and fizzle if you try to put that together and articulate it in any kind of a logical fashion that anybody else listening to you will understand. That's my conclusion. And my advice to you would be that you need to embrace both sides. <clears throat> and you need to hold these two together like a seamless tunic. And you need to believe in both halves of that. And you need to take off your shoes and your sandals because you're on holy ground. These are things that are difficult to understand, maybe impossible in this life. And I'm, I'm content to believe that in the wisdom of God, he has given us just as much explanation as he wanted us to have on these mysteries and on these truths. But I will in no way shy away from declaring them boldly in person, in private, and in public, these incredible doctrines on which our faith stands. And in my own experience as well as in my study of Scripture, I have a bit of, of an epignosis, an experiential knowledge of what God means by, by saying this in the way that Paul has articulated it. So what is my encouragement to you, all of you, all of us, 
My encouragement is acknowledge the God who foreknew you before you were in your mother's womb. To know the God who chose you before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1. The God who predestined you to be conformed to the likeness of his son, even though when he did it, he knew that sin would come into you and ravage you and contort the image of God that was in you when you were created. That you would embrace this God who called you, this inner calling that every Christian has received, not an outward calling of some preacher, but the inner calling that comes from, to every person who finally returns from sin and says yes to Jesus. That you would embrace this God who justified you, made you righteous when you were unrighteous by putting you into his son and counting the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to pay for your sins. That you would embrace this God that also is in the process right now, if you're a Christian, of making you holy, sanctifying you by his Holy Spirit and by his grace. And this God, believing in him, that he will not leave you, that he will not leave you to chance or any part of the process, from eternity past in the foreknowledge of God all the way to the being glorified with Christ in heaven, he's not going to leave any part of the golden chain to, to human frailty or to chance or to any other enemy of the soul. This God, this same God, will get you into heaven where you will be glorified just as Jesus Christ, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, is already glorified. I love that old song that comes from the South. How I got over, how I got over, my soul will look back one day and say, how did I get over? See, that's the mystery, that God will take us like we are, unworthy, ill-equipped, unable, and he'll get us over. Do you have faith in this God? Do you have this kind of faith that Paul is talking about that, that says it is all of God? That's what Paul's arguing. All boasting is excluded. Now, if you are a follower of Christ this morning, thank God that he loves you, Christian. Thank God that he loves you. He loves you more than you have loved your sin. He loves you more than you have loved your sin. And he is committed to conforming you into the essence and image of Jesus. And if you're not a Christian this morning, if you are not a follower of Christ this morning, and you're not sure of your standing with God, I would encourage you, recognize him today. Recognize the reality and the presence of the God who foreknew you, who created you. The God who knit you together in your mother's womb. The God who knew all the days ordained for you before one of them came to be. The God who even now at this moment is working in this message and through friends and circumstances and other places to, to cause you to see your need for Jesus Christ. I encourage you, turn to him today. Receive the grace and the forgiveness that can only come from God. And be thankful. Another author says this. C.J. Vaughn says, everyone who is eventually saved can only ascribe his or her salvation from the first step to the last to God's favor. 
Human merit must be excluded, and this can only be by tracing back the work far beyond the obedience which evidences or even the faith which appropriates salvation, even to an act of spontaneous favor on the part of God who foresees and foreordains from, from eternity all of his works. But remember this, you who already know Christ, remember this, in your understanding of foreknowledge and predestination and election, remember this, it has nothing to do with favoritism. This has nothing to do with favoritism. This has to do with holiness. This has to do with Christ-likeness. The purpose for which God foreknew you, predestined you, called you, justified you, and is sanctifying you is so that you will be conformed to the likeness of his Son. Don't forget that purpose. Let's move on to the second thing, and that is that God's grace for us in all things. I want to revisit verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, the logic in this verse is straight up and, and obvious, I hope. The logic in this verse is straight up and obvious. If, here it is. If God has gone to all the bother of not sparing his only son, but giving him up for us all on the cross... Well, that's the big part of it all. Why would, he, why would he stop short of anything that's going to get you into heaven? And that's the reason Christ died, was to get sons and daughters of God into heaven. So if, if God's done the big work already, why would he not do all the other small stuff? That's the logic of this verse. And the word translated gave him up. The word translated gave him up is the word paradidomai. And uh, this means to hand over, to betray. Same word is used of Judas, who betrayed Jesus. The same word is used of Pilate, who handed Jesus over after the trial to the soldiers to go up to Golgotha and be crucified. The same word here is used of what God the Father did to his son. He handed him over. Judas betrayed Jesus. Pilate handed him over to the soldiers. God the Father handed him over to be crucified. And that's why Jesus on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <coughs> to complete the work that was begun in us through the death of his son, God will not stop short of anything. He's already done the hardest thing. He gave up his only son. He's not going to let the death of his son have no meaning. He is going to save a people for himself. The people that he foreknew. The people that he predestined. The people that he called and justified in Christ. The people that he is sanctifying. And the people that he will glorify. What an incredible God. What an incredible God. And friends, again, I want to say it. I'll say it a few times this morning again and again. We must not cheapen this doctrine. We must not cheapen this verse, verse 32. We must not make it say something that it was not intended to say. <clears throat> God has not promised to graciously give us all things 
meaning that he is going to heal every sickness, that he is going to remove every tumor, that he is going to avoid, we're going to avoid every conflict. We're going to be given every advantage in life or work, that we're going to make more money, be more healthy, have a better family, never have conflict. God has not said that that's the all things. The all things have to do with being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. What's that going to take? It might take sickness for some of us. It might take hardship for some of us. It might take conflict. The all things that God works in verse 32 have the same intent as the all things of verse 28. They're going to all work together And God's purposes will be to bring us into one degree of glory to another until we are glorified in the presence of God. And so the aim is the all things. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If God is the one who justifies, who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died and was raised, who's at the right hand of God, right hand of God. And what is he doing? Same thing the Holy Spirit does on earth. He's interceding for us, but he's at the right hand of the Father. Have you ever tried reading your insurance policy? Let's take, for example, I don't know about you, but when I've tried to read an insurance policy, the fine print, the lawyer language, the extra clauses and footnotes, (laughs) they can lose you pretty quickly. Usually there's a basic insurance policy. There's this basic template of an insurance policy, and then other things are added depending on what you buy. <clears throat> if it's house insurance, for example, there's, there's flood damage and hail damage, and there's fire damage and theft and so on. If it's life insurance, a life insurance policy it covers sickness and it covers cancer and it covers accidental death and all these clauses are are added in there and not just added in one or two words but described in paragraphs and footnotes and so on. Insurance policies can be complicated to understand. That's why oftentimes we have insurance adjusters and we have lawyers and people that study them and explain them and You know, we usually fast forward to the bottom of these documents and say, we agree and check it, you know. What Paul is arguing in Romans chapter 8 is that the insurance policy that God the Father has secured for his children through faith in his Son is absolutely comprehensive. In fact, it's, it's so comprehensive that he describes it in two words. Two words to describe the whole insurance policy. What am I covered for, God? What is this insurance policy covering me for? What does God say? All things. Well, what about all things? Well, what about, what if that, all things? That's what Paul's arguing. (laughs) He's given us the Holy Spirit as the agent, the pledge, the one who walks with us to guarantee what Christ has underwritten by his blood to describe it all to us in our hearts, all things. In Greek, tapanta. That is what it covers. It covers all things. The coverage that God gives you includes all things. Everything in this life, everything in the life to come, all things, all forces that would or could come against you and your salvation and your eternal security, all things. No one, no one can nullify this policy. 
No one can bring a charge against God's elect. You don't need a lawyer to understand it. You understand all things. God's coverage is that comprehensive. No one can condemn the one whom God has justified. That's God's security. I'm not going to say you can take it to the bank because who trusts in the bank necessarily? I'm talking you can take this to God because God is a security that this world knows nothing about. There's nothing like it on earth. Thinking of Martin Luther and the hymn that he wrote that describes God. He says, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. God. One of the hymns, one of the verses of that hymn says, the body they may kill. <laughs> God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. This is an incredible insurance policy that God has given. Let's move on to the final point. God's love for us to be conquerors in all things. In verse 35, Paul asks the question, okay, so this is the insurance policy. Well, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the word who could be said what? Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And uh, the answer is there's nothing because of the Son's blood, because of the Holy Spirit's pledge, because of the Father's power. And so he goes on in verse 35, and he says, shall tribulation separate us from the love of God? No. Well, how about uh, shall distress separate us from the love? No. Shall persecution or famine separate us from the love of Christ? No. Shall nakedness or danger or sword or anything else like that separate us from the love of God? No. And then Paul writes in verse 37, he says, no. In all these things, there's the these things again. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And the word for more than a conqueror here Ipernikao, iper meaning above and beyond, superabundant, nikao meaning a victor, Nike, 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 the, the shoe company, they're, they're, it means it was named after the goddess, the Greek goddess of victory. And uh, here Paul's using this word and he's saying, we are more than victorious, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Paul proceeds in verses 38. And 39, he says, I'm sure, I'm convinced, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice all the categories Paul is covering. He's trying to be all-inclusive. In, all He's trying to make sure the uh, insurance policy includes all things. He's saying life or death, you're covered. He's saying not anything in the spiritual realm, not angels or rulers, and rulers could be spiritual powers and demonic forces. Not angels or rulers could do that. No demon's going to come and say, hey, he, he's screwing up. Strike him off, God. Not going to listen. No angel could do that. No demon could do that. Not anything in time, things present or things to come. Not anything in space nor powers nor height nor depth 
not anything, he finally sums it up in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So among the various things that, that I have sought to highlight in the scripture that we're looking at this morning, among the various things that I've sought to highlight in unpacking these glorious truths is that these things are not human-centered, that these things are God-centered, that the, the saturation of Romans 8 is all about God and the security that he provides for those who are his. He's accomplished it for us, and make no mistake, it is for his glory and the exaltation of his son, but we are the benefactors in this absolutely sheer mercy and grace. You know, there's so many times we hear the all things. There's other passages that I've could have quoted this morning, Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And, and uh, we, 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 in our fleshly way of thinking of faith, we stop at the all things. I can do all things. No, you can't. <laughs> you can't. People are being told today, young people are saying, you can do whatever you want. No, you can't. Why? Because God's purpose for you is to be conformed into the image of Christ. I can do all things through Christ if he's going to give me the strength. Yeah, okay. Don't follow the, the wrong rhetoric of human-centered thinking when God is for you. And if God is for you, who could be against you? The best life, the best career, the best future that you could ever have is the one God has designed for you. Follow when, when he leads you. Make no mistake. Let's not trivialize these statements. Let's not trivialize verse 28 or verse 32, carrying a self-centered faith into our, into our lives as though God is catering to our needs. Pat and I were at a wedding several years ago, and we were seated at a table of people we didn't know. And as the meal was being rolled out, uh, these people, as I remember it, were kind of not real impressed with the service, taking a little longer than, than we thought, they thought. And they started to reminisce about a time when they were at a resort where the service was incredible. And they talked about uh, how the, the staff and the waiters just seemed to know what you wanted before you even asked. That's what they said. Uh, you know, you wanted a, a hot towel, and they brought you a hot towel. You wanted a, an appetizer or an extra drink, and they, they just seemed to know what you wanted before you even asked. And then one of them added this. They said, I think that's what heaven is going to be like. And Pat and I remember sitting right beside each other and just kind of looking and glancing and looking at each other and in disbelief. For this couple, heaven was all about them. Heaven was all about them getting their temporal desires met without asking. Almost a, a sensual indulgence version of heaven. Nothing about Jesus, nothing about the lamb who was slain for our sins, nothing about falling down before him and taking off our crowns and casting them there. No, their heaven was all about this bellhop God who's waiting to, to serve their needs. 
for our good. All things working together for our good. No good thing does he withhold. If he's given his son, how not? He'll give you all things. No. I don't know how you respond to that story or that idea. I think to most of us it might feel sickening. But then as I examine the faith that I'm living out, I recognize I see elements of that same thing in me. I find that sometimes I can live that self-oriented bent toward wanting the comfort and wanting the pleasure and wanting God to answer my prayer the way I want God to answer my prayer. And how much we need to understand God's ways. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we take off our sandals. We are on holy ground. And uh, Lord, it is hard for us as saved sinners to put aside the old thinking and recognize that you're for us. And if you're for us, who could be against us? What could be against us? And the life that you have for us to walk in is better than any life we could choose for ourselves. Oh God, would you, would you communicate that? Father God, Abba Father, would you communicate that to our hearts through your Holy Spirit bearing witness that we are children of God. We want to serve you, Lord, and your purposes. And we say yes to you, Jesus, today. We say yes. Make us into the image of your Son, O Father. And we want to cooperate. Amen. Our Father, we just ask you this. Conform us into the image of your Son. Please conform us into the image of your Son. Even though Satan doesn't want that, even though the world doesn't want that, even though our sinful flesh doesn't want that, even though our pride doesn't want that, conform us into the image of your Son, and we trust you, the one who has already sent Jesus, has already done that for us. We trust you to continue to do that in us, to give us all things in that way. We trust you, you who have justified us and who are sanctifying us now. May your Son be glorified in us as you do that. All praise to him. We pray this in his name. Amen. Have a wonderful week. Thank you.